when I go to bed at night. I close my eyes, I shut off my brain, and I put it into space every night. When you talk to Wally Funk, you get a sense she wasn't meant to spend her life on the ground. She'd rather be up in the air. Ever since she was a young child, Wally Funk wanted to fly. She was born and raised in Taos, New Mexico, a small town about 100 miles north of Albuquerque, surrounded by mountains. She was an adventurous tomboy and she spent her childhood shooting, skiing and sleeping in tree houses. When she was two years old, Wally wandered off from her parents at an airfield. Her mother found her a short time later inspecting the nuts and bolts on a DC-3 airplane. A few years later, she was making her own model airplanes out of balsa wood. And when she was five, she was pretending to be Superman. At five years old, my parents gave me a Superman cape and I got up on the barn and I jumped off trying to fly. Well, I came right back down and I landed in the hay. Oh, that didn't work. And then I thought, oh, I didn't have a propeller on my nose. Wally Funk has a lot of stories like these. Even in her 80s, she comes across as someone who finds it hard to stay still. She's speaking to me over the phone from her home in Texas. She dialed into our Zoom call with a rosary phone, which I'll admit I didn't even know was possible. Okay, yeah, I had to do it twice. And after an hour of talking, she was already inviting me to Texas for a visit. Then you get to Texas, I want you to come. I'm right by DFW Airport. You just come on over and, gosh, San Francisco to here. <laughs> You get the sense that nothing is impossible for Wally Funk and that she's been like this her whole life. At 16, Wally moved from her home in New Mexico to start flight training in Missouri. She graduated top of her class and by the age of 20, she was the first female flight instructor at the Fort Sill Army Base in Oklahoma. She was the first female air safety investigator for the National Transportation Safety Board. Over the course of her life, Wally has racked up 19,800 flight hours and many more firsts. But she always wanted to go a step further, to fly higher than ever before, to travel into space. And in 1961, she came so close. This is the story of a true trailblazer, of a secret astronaut training program that was quietly shut down by an establishment that wasn't ready for women to fly. It's a story of strange medical tests and the quest to find out exactly who would take America into space. And it's the story of 13 women who would reshape the history of spaceflight without ever leaving Earth. I'm Claire Riley and this is Making Space. In the early 1960s, the US was consumed by the space race. The Soviet Union had just launched the Sputnik satellite in 1957, the first man-made object to enter orbit. Suddenly, the world's attention was turned towards the stars, and the US was scrambling to catch up. NASA opened its doors in 1958 and quickly set about launching its own space program, including its first mission to send spacecraft and humans into space. 
The mission was called Project Mercury. Project Mercury. Its objective is to ensure safe orbital flight. In the late 50s and early 60s, Project Mercury tested launch and escape systems. It assessed spacecraft designs and blasted rockets into suborbital flight. But as well as testing its spacecraft, NASA needed to ensure that humans could actually survive in space. Project Mercury tested the limits of the human pilots, military men who were deemed the best of the best. But were they fit for the physical and mental stress of flying in space? More than 50 candidates from the Air Force, Navy and Marines were shortlisted for Project Mercury. They were put through multiple rounds of written tests, interviews and medical history screenings. From there, 32 men were chosen to go through a battery of physical, medical and psychological exams at the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, in the end, seven men made the list. All test pilots with the right stuff to make it into space. They would be known as the Mercury Seven. There were no women astronauts at the beginning of the space age because in many ways the definition of the job description of astronaut had maleness really baked into it. That's Dr. Margaret Weidekamp. She's the chair of the Space History Department in the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum and an expert on the early history of women in spaceflight. One factor was that astronauts were chosen from a pyramid of military-trained jet test pilots and women had been banned from flying in the military so no woman had access to the kind of training that allowed them into the candidate pool from which NASA was drawing its astronauts. But they also had a lot of cultural assumptions about the kind of person that they thought they needed, um, being an engineer, which was an overwhelmingly male profession, and also um, a pilot, a test pilot, who could speak to the other engineers about what they were finding with the spacecraft. Women had already proven they could fly. During World War II, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs, had been vital to the war effort. These were civilian women who tested aircraft and trained pilots. But when the war ended and the men returned home, the WASPs were no longer needed. NASA didn't officially ban women from the astronaut program. But to get your foot in the door, you needed to be a military test pilot. And to get into the military, you needed to be a man. No wings, no astronaut training. A convenient loophole. But just because there were no women in the Mercury program, that didn't mean women weren't physically capable of flying in space. And one man was willing to prove it. Enter Dr. William Randolph Lovelace II, the man who led the Mercury 7 astronaut testing at the Lovelace Clinic in New Mexico. So Lovelace's Women in Space program was a privately funded testing project where he was really in some ways very visionary, thinking even before any human being went into space about huge orbiting space stations that would require dozens of astronauts to be on board doing reconnaissance and scientific research, a whole slew of programs. And on the other hand, Randy Lovelace was very much a product of his time. And so he was thinking that that kind of orbiting space station would also need secretaries and telephone operators and laboratory assistants and nurses. And that meant that you needed to know whether women could physically survive the rigors of spaceflight. Lovelace's Women in Space program brought 25 women to New Mexico to go through the same tests taken by the men in the Mercury program. 
Each one of the 25 women were aviators and pilots in their own right. The first to be tested was Jerry Cobb, a pilot with 10,000 flying hours and three world records under her belt. There was Jane Hart, a licensed pilot and the wife of US Senator Philip Hart. And then, at just 21 years of age, there was Wally Funk. Jerry Cobb calls me up one day and says, Wally, do you want to be an astronaut? I said, oh, yes. He says, will you get a hold of Dr. Loveless? So I sent him a telegram. I was interested. I got a message back to report in two Mondays. Well, I said, yes, sir, I will be there. And as it was, I beat everybody there was because I was, I was strong, I was muscular, I was, uh, could do anything. And uh, I had the way of knowing how to do things faster, better. Lovelace ran the women through more than 70 separate tests to evaluate their physical and mental strength. The exact same tests the Mercury astronauts were put through. They said, your body is going to have a hard time trying to pass all these things. I said, just give it to me. So the first thing was I just got strapped in a chair and they injected 10 degree water into my right ear. Woo, that gave you a jolt. Then I had a bike test and they wanted to know how fast I could go for 11 minutes and I beat their record. We had enemas, and then we had things going from our mouth and our throat down to our stomach. The chest was in our stomach. I had tubes that went up my bottom, up to uh, wherever they were going. I, I never did know. There were radiation tests, enemas, and a gynecological exam, the only test that the men didn't do. There was psychological profiling, vision exams that lasted for hours, tests designed to make them dizzy and then give them motion sickness. X-rays from top to bottom, having to swallow a tube to test gastric juices. Dr. Weidekamp again. Having a electrode put into muscles in order to test how uh, the muscle would spasm and then how quickly they would recover from that. And then there was the sensory deprivation test. The women were made to float alone in a tank of water in complete darkness. Wally described the experience. And so they said, okay, bring your swimsuit. You're gonna be in a tank of water tomorrow. I said, okay. So I got in, I got comfortable. They wanted me to spread eagle out. There was no light, there was no noise, there was nothing. I couldn't tell up from down. I just did what they told me to do. So with that, I just put my brain back up into space and, and I think they were thinking I was gonna hallucinate, but I didn't. Okay, so pretty soon I hear another voice and they said, Wally, how are you doing? I said, perfect. They said, and you need to know this, you stayed in the tank for 10 hours and 35 minutes and you never moved. 25 women went through the Lovelace Clinic only 13 passed the tests, including Wally. Years later, these women would be dubbed the Mercury 13, women capable of doing the same tests as the seven Mercury astronauts. The Mercury 7 would become heroes for a generation, but the Mercury 13 women never even met as a group. Many of them didn't even meet till years later after the program ended. 
Unlike the male cohort, Wally Funk, Jerry Cobb and the other women in the Lovelace Women in Space program did their tests alone and in secret. No friendly competition pushing them to go harder and last longer. No group of colleagues cheering them on. No team camaraderie at all. And still, their results were phenomenal. When we go back and we look at the results, we see that they in fact bore out some of what Lovelace had been looking for, which was whether women had any physiological advantages for spaceflight. When you compare the tests, you can see that women have better cardiopulmonary health. Uh, they did historically better in these tests and in others in isolation and in sensory deprivation testing. It's even more remarkable how well the women did, given that their testing conditions were in some ways much more difficult than what the men went through. After Lovelace's tests in New Mexico, the next step was to send the 13 women to Pensacola, Florida, to go through further testing on jet aircraft inside a military facility. But just as the women were preparing to go to Florida, the program was suddenly shut down. The Pensacola School of Naval Aviation withdrew its permission for the women to travel to their site to take a next generation set of tests. It came to the attention, probably in the Pentagon, uh, certainly at NASA headquarters, and the permission was withdrawn. And they are concerned that it's going to be a public relations nightmare, that they're going to be seen to be being unkind, unchivalrous to these women in a moment when that is still very politically important. And they thought that it was going to make the space program look frivolous, that they were trying these odd experimental things rather than focusing on big goals. And just like that, Lovelace's Women in Space program was over. And with it, Wally's chance of going to space. They said, Wally, we know that you have exemplated through everything, but you don't have an engineering degree. I said, NASA wants me to have an engineering degree after I've done everything physically better? Well, we don't have girls in the service, and we don't have girls at NASA. I said, we've got to change that. The Mercury 13 women could do everything the men could do. Literally everything. They had logged the flight hours, they had undergone exactly the same tests. But as Project Mercury forged ahead, as Alan Shepard became the first American in space, and John Glenn carried the country's dreams into orbit, the Mercury 13 was stuck on the ground. Godspeed, John Glenn. Wally Funk still doesn't really know why NASA was so unwilling to include women in the space program. Do you have any sense of why it took NASA so long to finally get women in I can't space? answer that question, honey. I wish I could. But it was the fact that they weren't ready, I guess. They didn't think women could do as well as they did to outdo the guys. According to Dr. Weidekamp, there were barely any paper records to show how and why the program was cancelled. But we do have one record. After the program finished, two of those Mercury 13 women met with President Lyndon Johnson. Jerry Cobb, who'd first told Wally about the program, and Jane Hart, who, thanks to her marriage to Michigan Senator Philip Hart, had some handy political connections. They wanted to plead their case to the president and push for NASA to open its doors to women. 
Ahead of the meeting, President Johnson's assistant Liz Carpenter drafted a letter for him to send to NASA. I'm sure you agree, the draft letter read, that sex should not be a reason for disqualifying a candidate for orbital flight. Could you advise me whether NASA has disqualified anyone because of being a woman? All that was needed was President Johnson's signature, but the letter never saw the light of day. Rather than bringing that into the meeting and offering the women his support, Lyndon Johnson hand wrote on the letter in very large, uncharacteristically large handwriting, let's stop this now, file. And he sent that immediately to his files and never used it. But the women didn't stop pushing for inclusion. In July 1962, five months after John Glenn orbited Earth in Friendship 7, the fight for women to be included in NASA's astronaut program went to Congress. Both Jerry Cobb and Jane Hart testified before the Special Subcommittee on the Selection of Astronauts. For Jerry Cobb, the goal was to get what she called qualified women in America's manned space program. I'm not competing with the men at all. I think that both men and women will be flying in space. For Jane Hart, it was simple. Let's face it, she said. For many women, the PTA just is not enough. Reading through the transcript of the hearing, I got a real sense of what these women were up against. And at times, it was hard to read. It wasn't just NASA or the US government. These women were fighting for recognition at a time when much of society viewed them as second-class citizens. This is a moment when Women would have needed someone to co-sign for a home loan or to borrow money for a car. They might not have had full control over their finances. There would have been an expectation that a father or a husband would co-sign on major financial paperwork. So the idea that women could represent the nation in this Cold War battlefield that was the space race really was a step beyond what the culture was able to support at the time. The hearing featured plenty of sexist rhetoric. Arguments that women just weren't as interested in engineering as men. Questions about whether women had the mental strength to survive in space. And then there were the comments from John Glenn. The men go off and fight the wars and fly the airplanes, he told the committee. The fact that women are not in this field is just a fact of our social order. And then there's my favorite, John Glenn comparing NASA's astronaut program to football. We have the Washington Redskins football team, he said. My mother could probably pass the physical exam that they give pre-season for the Redskins, but I doubt if she could play too many games for them. Reading the transcript, I found myself getting so frustrated. These women aced their tests, even though they did everything in secret. Hell, Jerry Cobb was flying at a time when women were barely allowed in the cockpit and she was still setting world records. Here's Jerry Cobb speaking to the CBC in 1963, a year after the congressional hearings. Why in the Western program do you think there is a, a need, if you feel there is a need for women in space? Well, it's the same thing as, as is there a need for men in space? I mean, if we're going to send a human being into space, we should send the one most qualified. And in, in certain areas, women have a lot to offer, and other areas men do. I think that we ought to use both. The hardest part of hearing that is knowing that it would still be another 15 years before NASA would let women into the astronaut program. And it would be two decades before an American woman would breach the final glass ceiling and go into space. America's first woman astronaut, 
and the shuttle has cleared the tower. When she launched on a shuttle mission in 1983, there's no doubt that Sally Ride was following in the footsteps of those early women of the 60s. But the Mercury 13 didn't just pave the way for female NASA astronauts. They opened the door to a new era of recognition for women across society. I think that the Lovelace story is a very important one because it's at the intersection of women's physical abilities and women's professional capacities. I think it's an important first step in a longer history of women in professional sports, of women in uh, military service, which is a very physically demanding requirement, of women in the history of going into the professions, law schools, medical schools, going to get advanced degrees. And so when we connect the dots in those ways, I think that we see how important that was. In 1995, 34 years after Lovelace's secret program put those 13 women through their paces in Albuquerque, seven of the surviving members of the group finally met face to face. They gathered at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral to watch the launch of Space Shuttle Mission 63, the first shuttle mission to be piloted by a woman, Eileen Collins. Liftoff of Space Shuttle Discovery on a mission to prepare for the next era of world cooperation in space. I think it was important that when Eileen Collins was the first woman to pilot a space shuttle, she wanted those women pathbreakers there present to get to see that she was getting to finally do the thing that they had dreamed of. Discovery rolling on course for an orbit with the Mir space station. Mir currently half a world away above the Indian Ocean. Wally Funk still has a picture from that day. Seven women who were by that point in their 60s and 70s all united, but meeting as a group for the first time. To see them standing there, Wally in her NASA sweater, the shuttle looming in the background, it's hard not to get emotional. They were finally watching an American woman pilot a space shuttle. They'd all had the same dream more than 30 years earlier, but they would never know what it meant to represent their country in space. Wally Funk is still flying, She's teaching and lecturing, and two weeks before our interview, she'd been up in the air flying with a friend. A friend of mine has an airplane, and he was flying, and I said, hey, let's go do some takeoffs and landings and fly around the area. He said, great, and I'll pay for the gas. And she still dreams of going to space. A decade ago, she paid $20,000 to reserve a place on the waiting list with Virgin Galactic. She estimates there are fewer than 100 people in front of her, all people who want to become private astronauts in their own right. And if Wally got the call from Virgin to suit up and prepare for launch, well, even after all these years, she says she's ready. I'm fine. I'm ready to go. I wish I could just fly right over there to you. I, I want to go so bad. I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but you'll be one of the first ones to know. <laughs> Space was produced by Claire Riley and Sophia Fox Sowell. This episode was written and recorded by Claire Riley in San Francisco, California. The show was sound designed and mixed with additional audio production by Stephen Beecho. Archival audio courtesy of NASA and the CBC. 
Additional background also came from Lady Birds 2, The Continuing Story of American Women in Aviation by Henry M. Holden and Lori Griffith. Making Space is a production of CNET and Viacom CBS.